Welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast, hosted by Angel Deer. In this podcast, we explore the mysteries of spirituality and consciousness. In each episode, we dive deep into the realms of human experiences, our rapidly changing world, and the unseen realms, tapping into the universal wisdom that connects us all. Whether you're a seasoned spiritual seeker, starting to awaken to the possibilities of a more expansive reality, or want support on your journey, this podcast is for you. Join me as we explore topics such as shamanism, spiritual transformation, holistic healing, the medicine path, energy healing, plant medicine, ancient wisdom, and more. Our guests are respected elders and experts in their fields, and we'll learn from their insights and experiences as we journey together on the path of spiritual growth. If you can, please consider supporting this podcast by joining our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the sanctuary and why. Once again, it is patreon.com slash the sanctuary and why. Now, let's dive into today's episode. It's really great to be here today with Andy. I discovered this podcast, I think, quite recently, probably a, a few months ago. Someone mentioned it to me, Andy, what you were doing. And I was like, oh, I really love this. <laughs> and there were so many topics that were popping into my head. And then I dive a little bit into what you were doing. And so I'm really excited to be here with you today. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. And I'm sure you're pretty busy uh, with all you are doing. So I'm going to tell you a little bit to our listeners with Andy and the work he's doing. So I'm just going to read his bio and then I'll ask him exactly who he is because sometimes bios uh, can feel a little bit artificial. So Andy is an accountant, a farmer, writer, and spends his free time focused on food sovereignty through a variety of formal and informal institutions. While the host and primary researchers uh, for the Poor Prols Almanac, he also co-hosts Tomorrow, Today, the Gastropocene miniseries, and he's currently in the process of authoring three books, Subred and Roses Preth. I like that says that when you have free time, because I see three books and many <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to ask you first about that. But uh, for people that, yeah, don't know the, the Poor Pro's Almanac, so the Poor Pro Almanac is a project dedicated to developing a framework for an ecology-centered vision of the world after capitalism inevitable collapse. And the focus is to make ecology and agriculture accessible, replicable locally, and to highlight examples of resilience in history and people actively developing the systems in real time. So Andy, tell me a little bit about how do you spend your day-to-day? -day? Because I see many podcasts, many books in writings. I'm <laughs> guessing you're starting your planting of the seeds right now. We're getting close to the spring season. So how is life for you right now? And what is really driving your days and what makes you really excited to wake up in the morning? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it, it sounds a lot. And when you say it out loud, uh, it's scary when you say it out loud. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm an accountant. Obviously, right now it's tax season. So this is my time of year where I'm just 
working all the time, as well as, you know, it is spring, we're planning a, a massive free native seed project that we're uh, distributing a thousand packets of native seeds for the east northeast region of the United States. That is basically the things that I'm focused on in terms of work outside the podcast. Obviously, like you said, I've got some books that it's something I've been picking at, but the podcast itself, you know, has kind of been the impetus for a lot of the things that we've been doing outside of it. The idea had been uh, actually before COVID, a friend of mine had unfortunately suddenly passed away. And one of my high school friends, me and him decided we would take a road trip down to visit or to see him for the wake and the funeral. And, um, you know, 12 hours in a car driving from New England down to the DC area. And we were just kind of talking about stuff kind of what we talk about on the podcast. And he was like, people would want to listen to this. And I'm like, no one wants to listen to this. You know, we're, we sound like crazy people talking about like collapse and all this stuff. And then, you know, we talked about it. I was like, yeah, maybe we'll do a couple episodes might be kind of fun. And that was in like December. And then, you know, three months later, we still hadn't really done anything. And then COVID hit. And it was like, okay, maybe that's a sign that we should do this. And my whole idea had been, or our whole idea had really been around this idea of, what does it mean to have sustainable food and ecological systems where humans are a function of it? And it's not a system in which nature ecology is thriving despite humanity, mm. but because of humanity. What does that look like? And, uh, you know, kind of beginning to pull on that thread and seeing where it really started to go, uh, what examples existed in history and, you know, why are we where we are today? Like, what are, what are the reasons that we don't live that way? Because it's, uh, when you think from that lens, it makes a lot of sense. And you're like, well, why would we have ever left this, right? Why would we have ever done something other than live within uh, a sustainable ecosystem in which we're not destroying the world around us? Hmm. Yeah, those are really fascinating subjects. And I'm sure when people hear collapse, you know, uh, I'm guessing our audience is pretty comfortable with the term or understand what we are talking about. But before we go into kind of the solutions and, you know, what you are doing, which I think is remarkable and really interesting, let's talk a little bit about that collapse, talking okay. about, you know, the society, maybe political economy, food systems. How do you see that from your own lens? You know, wh what is really, I guess, keeping you up at night sometime or... <laughs> What do you think? You know, it's hard to forecast anything, but I guess if you had someone that will tell you, well, I don't really think any of that is happening. I think we're going to be okay. We've always been okay, right? Yep. What's your take on that? You know, I think it really depends on who you're talking to. Like you have to frame it in a context that makes sense for them. So I think talking to older people that may not think about economics or, you know, think about fertilizer use and things like that, you know, just being like, all right, it's March 2nd right now as we're recording. I don't know if I can say that, but uh, yes, it's, 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 um, it's very early spring, late winter uh, here in New England and people tapped their maple trees six weeks ago. We usually don't tap until March 10th. 14th, right around that ballpark is kind of the sweet spot. Mm -hmm. So we're tapping eight weeks early, which means the temperatures are off by eight weeks. And we have not had any snow this winter. And this is so far above where climate projections 
said we would be. Not to say this this could very well be an an anomaly, right? This year could absolutely just be like a uh, you know a freak thing, but you can't ignore the fact that something is fundamentally different. If you talk to older people, they always talk about you know around here at least back in my day from you know November to April there was snow on the ground. I haven't I haven't had to clean the frost off of my windshield this winter. Mm. That is. That's never happened. <laughs> I mean, you'd be lucky if you had a, a couple of weeks in the winter where you didn't have to clean frost off your windshield 10 years ago. The scale of what is happening is so accessible once you start talking to people about like the way the world has always been around us, that they can start to really be aware of it. And even if they won't use the terms climate change, climate collapse, mm-hmm. I think it's really hard for people to ignore it anymore. Like it's, it's very clearly happening. And whether or not we are the response, the people, you know, capitalism, humans are the reason why it's happening. We still have to deal with the, the consequences of it, whether or not it's humans, like that is coming, whether or not we have anything to do with it, which, you know, I think we probably are on the same page that obviously humans do. But again, if you're talking to someone that may be less apt to believe that, you know, we're facing a, an impending global crisis, um, I, I, you know, it's hard not to see it happening right now, especially this year. Yeah, I I agree with you. And like you, you know, I'm, I'm living with the land and in connection to it and I grow food and tap trees and have bees. And, you know, I see the, the direct impact. I think, you know, one of the things that is quite difficult uh, when as a collective or as a society, we've been so disconnected from our food systems, even from nature in many ways, right? We might go to a park or we might go to nature for a weekend or for holidays, but we don't have a constant daily connection to it and we don't really see the small changes i think it's hard for people to persist say well great you know the winter was not as cold uh same for us here in the catskills we just had our first snowstorm a few days ago and there was seven inches it's almost melted already because it's so warm in the last couple of days and people say well well just plant you know orange trees and lemon trees and we might not have any more of the poplars and uh, the white pine. So can you share a little bit about this changes and this collapse and really the impact that it has on the ecosystem resilience and capacity to adapt also? Yeah, so there's a lot of things, you know, the unintended consequences of what's going to happen from climate change. I mean, you know, without talking about like the big scary stuff like permafrost thaw and all that, just like talking from a very local perspective, I'll pick on where I live, you know, without the cold snap, the ticks aren't dying. And between that and our poor management of deer, because we're afraid to shoot Bambi, or, you know, we're afraid that if we you know, try to find a way to manage deer populations in suburban areas, you know, those deer are directly correlated to tick populations. The amount of fires that we have on the landscape are directly correlated to the tick populations. So these fundamental ways that we've always stewarded the landscape that would, even in a cha- if the climate were to change, those tools that we have, we're not using them. And we're afraid to use them in a lot of ways because of optics and PR and our understanding of private property and how that plays into what we can and can't do. You know, it's hard to create ecosystem support when you're dependent on individuals, on individual parcels to tie into a bigger picture, right? So the way we live today is not designed in a way that we can quickly 
allocate resources in the appropriate ways to mitigate the, the worst effects of, you know, ecosystem collapse. Additionally, and you probably experience this where you do, where you live, but here, because of repeated clear cuttings over the last 300 years, our forest ecosystem is not very healthy for a number of reasons. Part of it is that we have, you know, you're supposed to have this mosaic of forest ages and types and prairies and all these different pieces from clear cutting and then conservation, which meant complete hands off. We've done the worst of both things. We've created massive monocrop forests that have no management that are completely at least here, like wildly too dense. And the understory is just the same as the canopy, which is primarily pine. So we're not seeing that natural succession anywhere. And also this is happening on a massive scale because everything was done at the same time and, you know, kind of with uh, broad strokes. And the things that we can do to help mitigate and help prepare and deal with the consequences of ecological destruction we can't. Our hands have been very much tied to keep us from doing those things. That's where I think people need to start understanding that we can't address these ecological issues without social infrastructure, the economic, political infrastructure that makes it impossible for us to start addressing some of these really big issues. Now, with that, also, you've brought up the idea of food systems. And food is really important because that's where most of our land is allocated, right? Something like 30% of our 30, 40% of the land in the US is um, agricultural lands. And with that in mind, that means what we're growing impacts the ecosystem around it, right? That is whether or not it's species that need to be pollinated, whether or not it's things that uh, draw nutrients from the ground, all these different ways that the crops that we're growing impact the ecosystem around it. And because we've become so disconnected, the way you've discussed that we don't know, we, you know, our, our closest connection to the season is drinking pumpkin spice coffee in the fall, right? <laughs> that, that is like, you really have to start thinking about it. Like, why are we so attracted to this idea of like fall and pumpkins when no one eats pumpkin? They want them, but they don't eat them. We're attracted to pumpkin spice coffee, all these different flavors that come from the fall. But we don't actually meaningfully engage with the season as it is other than like, it's not too hot, it's not too cold, you can dress up and stay warm, you know, all, all the stereotypical things. But I think it speaks to the fact that we, we're subconsciously very aware of the fact that we are not living in a way that is human. It is not the way we've ever lived on a landscape ever. And it's, I think, a, a small part of us that's become socially acceptable to say, I, I miss this part of my seasonality, this part of being in tune with the, the rhythm of the landscape. Without incorporating food into it, it's just, it's just topical. It's not really solving any, anything, right? Mm -hmm. So like, to get back to this idea of food, though, you know, when we start thinking about what does it mean to support our ecosystem – it doesn't mean to pull us off of the landscape, right? That's what we've always thought. You know, we were just talking about this idea of like our forests are these massive early stage succession, basically monocrops, because we've taken humans out of it. We are not supposed to mess, you know, leave no trace is the, the big thing when you go hiking. And of course, that, that meant in, in uh, part to litter, but also like there's a very long and complicated racist history to this idea of like leave no trace. But when we start talking about food systems and the human element in the landscape, what does it mean to create food systems that are within the context and the confines of that landscape? And how, how possible is it? And then like, 
there's obviously this issue, this very complicated issue of colonialism to, to address at some point. And also the fact that with climate change, what that landscape looks like, as you said about the orange trees, is going to look fundamentally different than what it has in the past. So it's not that we can go back to 1491, but that we have to find, I guess, a pragmatic way where people are humble enough to come to the table and say, like, we, we don't have an answer. There's no solution for what things look like in the future. Mm-hmm. But what can we do to to make amends for the past and to start thinking about what a, a future that isn't framed in shame and hatred and racism and colonialism, what does that look like? How, can we ever get there? And if not, what's the best thing we can do? Mm. Yeah, I think those are really fundamental questions we need to ask ourselves, you know, because I think very often we take very quick decision and based on the system we're in without really reflecting back and seeing, okay, does this ever work? You know, I think there is in the, I guess in the collective beliefs that we were going to be okay if we just do those big conservation areas, right? We created all those massive state parks that we are not going to really touch and then we'll dedicate spaces for living and spacing for our food. And we kind of splitted all of that, right? We separated nature from our living space. We separated our living space from our food growing space. And that's pretty recent, right? And in history, yeah. in fact, in the different cultures in the world, that's not something that is very common. That's not something that really worked anywhere, that we don't have an example for it. So I want to come onto a little bit this idea of restoration and how do we go with this because even the forest here as you said my forest has nothing to do with what it looked like 300 years ago Uh, we mainly have fast growing trees which are white pines around here and hemlocks we have very few hard tree you know oak trees are a bit left the cedars are almost completely gone i mean you can literally hike for six hours without seeing one cedar tree because they were all cut So very often I feel that people think of conservation and restoration from a kind of idealistic colonial white way of seeing restoration and not really understanding what it means because we probably even don't remember what it would look like, what it should look like. Yeah, it's definitely, I think... Uh, not completely, but largely been erased from like the the human memory of what this landscape looked like in a lot of ways. You know, if you look at if you're on like social media, Instagram, you'll see like people post like the record sized trees like in mm. various states, and you look at them and they're like, you know this tree is 420 years old, blah blah blah, and like it's a huge tree by today's standards because we have no context, right? Whereas historically, that would actually still be if you're talking about an oak tree, a 400 year old oak tree is not even like technically middle-aged and for us that is the biggest we've ever seen because we've just we don't realize how decimated the landscape is because we don't have any other context and that is i think for me one of the scariest parts right that we we are so unaware of how much better the landscape once looked that Mm -hmm. to even suggest we have a solution seems like wildly egotistical that we can be like, oh, this is what we need to do when our great, 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 
so on grandchildren wouldn't even live to see if we started stewarding the landscape the way it had been 500 years ago what it what it once looked like and then obviously there's the whole climate change piece of it and the, the interesting thing about the climate change piece that i think i don't want to say it gives me hope but i guess it get, it gets me thinking about what a novel ecosystem might look like is that we have a number of species that will move very quickly north species primarily those pioneer species that are adapted to traveling quickly things like white pines will continue marching further north but like oak trees, uh, while we have oak trees here, a lot of southern varieties of oak trees will start working their way up, but they move very slowly. Hickory trees, the same. They move very slowly. Their nuts don't travel very far from where they fall. And basically, the, the rule of thumb is like the bigger the seed is, the longer it takes to travel north. Mm -hmm. So what are we doing today to help those species that do need to travel north so that they survive? You know, they're not going to be where they once were, but we want them to survive. And then where do they fall into this question of like what a, a native ecosystem looks like? You know, that, you know, I think the uh, straw man a lot of people will make when in defense of invasives is that there is no static point in time. So why are you trying to make a certain period in time static? And mm -hmm. the core piece of that that is valid is that there has been no static piece in time. But to compare that to like the massive influx because of global capitalism and what it's done to our native ecosystems is a little, you know, is a little silly to try to compare that to corn coming up from Mesoamerica, right? The, those are, you know, you're talking about one thing that didn't fundamentally change the ecosystem versus like, what there's like hundreds of you know qualifying invasive species as in invasive meaning they're specifically being dangerous and destroying ecosystem not talking about like non-natives but literal invasives that are destroying the ecosystem and trying to like validate that by you know referring to something else that's you know kind of ubiquitous and has no real uh, invasive traits Sorry, I'm getting off on a little tangent that... Uh... <laughs> no, it's, it's a good one. It's a good one. And, and, you know, I think we cannot separate the subject, right? We cannot thinking of the collapse and the change and not bring into that discussion native and non-native species. Talk about the invasive and also connect it to all the other systems, right? The insect populations and the bird population, because, you know, zoos are very dependent, obviously, on what's growing there. And yes, you know, insects and birds have a capacity to move, you know, uh, a bit further and faster than the tree. Uh, but there's a whole impact on all those other systems that I think often, I think when people don't know really the subject, don't really see the importance of those other species that in fact provide the resistance, the resilience, the restoration of the system. Yeah. And I think like to that point, we're so disconnected from our ecological conditions. And then when we start talking about this idea of restoration, people usually try to incorporate food into it, right? And you see that play out with like permaculture where this idea of, all right, I want to help my ecosystem, but I also want to make myself more resilient and feed my community, you know, whatever vision that they have with this idea of like, I'm going to grow food for me and my community and support the ecosystem. A lot of times those end up falling on or those systems end up falling on non-native species, peaches, plums, apples, largely fruit trees, and sometimes like, you know, English walnuts because people don't like the taste of black walnuts, or they might find some like novel crops that they think are really cool. And sometimes it is occasionally like actually native, like pawpaw. That whole idea is centered on the idea of like, how do we feed humans the way we 
we are eating today, right? Fundamentally keep or tries to perpetuate a food system that is predicated on, you know, cheap fossil fuel and global access to food. And there's nothing wrong with necessarily having a peach tree in your backyard. The problem becomes when you when you conflate in your head, when you mix these things in your head that our food system has to, if it's good for me, it's good for the ecology. So like with pawpaw, pawpaws are great fruit. They're, they have a beautiful and wonderful history and we should absolutely be trying to keep them alive and give them cultural revel- relevance. However, if you're going to, if your goal is to support your ecosystem, a pawpaw only has like one or two specialist species that it supports as pollinators, that same pawpaw would traditionally be in like a wetlands. If you're working around like a riparian zone, a willow makes a lot more sense in terms of how much support it gives for its ecosystem. But we don't care when we talk about the food forest or permaculture unless it gives something back to us individually. And it's still in that human-centered mindset that a lot of the permaculture work exists. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with caring about ourselves as humans, but as a as a solution for the way we're living today, it, it kind of sh- falls short because it ignores the fact that humans really shouldn't be centered in the way that we design and manipulate our ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there is, you know, I mean, I want to kind of talk a little bit about that because there is, permaculture is pretty trendy, right? We hear a lot about it. You talk more about agroecology, and then we see terms like rewilding the landscape, right, or a debole landscape. So can you can you give us a little bit of a landscape of that, and what is sure. your perspective on today's better solution, I would say, in order to include all those other systems, to include not just feeding ourselves, but feeding the pollinators, right, and to increase that resilience together? Yeah. Yeah. So I've come at the permaculture thing from a couple different angles, trying to, I guess, contextualize it in a way that I think is uh, helpful for people that are in that world. I think in a lot of ways, permaculture's success has been its own demise in some ways because people become a permaculture instructor. And even if you start to realize the flaws in the system, your existence, your money comes from having that permaculture next to your name. If you get rid of it and go with agroecology or something else, it's going to lose that your capacity to access the markets where you sell the thing you do. It's messy. Like it, it now has this history that exists and this uh, cultural relevance that people can't easily just abandon. And I, I think that has kind of caused it to become something that it maybe wasn't originally intended to be. But ultimately, the point with permaculture is that despite its focus on this idea of like permanent agriculture, you know, you could you could unpack the linguistic choice of that terminology of agriculture versus horticulture and this idea of permanence, because permanence is a really relative concept, you know, that where tree crops are in a sense like perennial and permanent, but also like that doesn't necessarily mean it's the the best thing. You know, people have mm-hmm. lived in different ways that may not necessitate permanent agriculture or perennial agriculture mm-hmm. based on ecosystem need. Mm-hmm. And fundamentally it becomes how do I transform a landscape into the thing that produces food for my homestead? It's ultimately very individualistic. And ultimately it's again, taking the food system as we eat and trying to figure out how to create it on my local scale instead of 
thinking about how my management correlates with the ecosystem around us. Mm-hmm. Now, agroecology is a very similar but very different concept. And agroecology is framed in this idea of ecosystem first, ecosystem support based in science that is driven by an understanding of class and identity and how history and all these different pieces play into how we steward a landscape. What responsibility do we have to the previous stewards of the landscape before we make decisions? What are the ways that this landscape was stewarded and how appropriate is that today? What responsibility do we have to people of uh, with and without means to access and have a piece of what's going on when you're stewarding a landscape. So it's a much more holistic understanding that's inevitably more backed by some scientific rigor to understanding what it means to take care of a landscape, what it means to feed people. Ultimately, how do we create better ecosystems because humans are on it for everything, not just ourselves? Yeah, it feels like it has a, a depth of relationships that is much wider, you know. And in many ways, you know, when I look at agroecology, I think there's a lot of things that native people that used to live on this land have understood and have practiced for a very long time, right? It was not just about the people. It was about all the relations there. Yeah, and I think like, you know... I don't know the politics of your audience, but I think especially on the left, and I'm guessing probably your audience would have aligned with this discussion. You know, when we talk about things like land back, I think it's a very easy default position for a, pe- a lot of people on the left. Like, you know, we need, we need land back. We need land back. Okay. But then when you start talking about, you know, invasive species, especially with the permaculture left side of things, there's a lot of people because the permaculture community is much more willing to like kind of let, let nature be kind of thing, right? That that invasives are here, we can't do anything about it. I wish they weren't, but this is the messy stage that in 10,000 years we'll have like this beautiful, complex ecosystem because all these things have learned to co-evolve together and yada, yada, yada. But if we're trying to make this argument that we're framing our vision in what the future looks like or what a better future looks like based on land stewardship practices of indigenous people, giving land back to the uh, indigenous people who have stewarded the landscape, that also includes the native species that were here. If we're, if we're truly trying to respect and understand and align ourselves with indigenous people and their values, that includes their values about the autonomy of the species that were on the landscape before colonialism. And I don't think I've really heard a whole lot of people making that case that like, if we believe in autonomy and we believe in land back, that also means those species that the evening primrose, all of those spring ephemerals that are being wiped out because of our terrible land stewardship practices, those deserve the same rights of autonomy that we quickly dismiss. Yeah, it's very complex because I guess, you know, in the idea of migration of species of plants right, and trees, what is native and non-native has shifted a lot. But here you make the distinction, obviously, between the invasive, uh, which is a different subclass, I guess, of the non-native, right? Yeah. Uh, so I want to make sure that people already understand that. We, you have the one that really come in and, and destroy the landscape like we have on the edge of our river here, you know, and, and other species that just wipe out everything and the native species cannot find any ground or light to survive. 
Yeah, I think we've talked before that you're a hunter. And as a hunter, and I think this is where a lot of conservative or rural folks can kind of see this, be on the same page, is that if you follow deer, they very rarely will go and eat those invasive species. As part of why they've become invasive is because there's nothing really trying to keep them in check, right? That's like Mm -hmm. the, the definition is that they're growing faster than they can be stopped. So like deer don't, or in a lot of cases are not eating those things. So you're providing less food for the things that you want to eat. You can explain that to hunters and that, hey, if we have more native species, if we steward the landscape differently, we can increase populations of the things you do want to eat and the things you do want to hunt, the things you want to see on a healthy landscape. And I think they can get they can get down with that really easily once you frame it in, in those contexts. Yeah, and I think it's interesting you bring that up because uh, I feel very often that discussion on you know not land give back that's probably pretty split in the political spectrum. But let's say you know land restoration, uh, management of landscapes, the type of food system we want has been highly politicized, and I feel like it's almost like there is two schools today, right? There's a more capitalistic way of seeing things, and you know it's grow corn everywhere. I'm making it really extreme, right? And the other way are those hippies that are coming in and telling us that we need to go, you know, become again, hunter gatherers, right? We need to go just make this forest edible and somehow we'll survive there. What do you think of that? Because I think there's a, there's a real uh, kind of problem we need to address here. How do we bridge this kind of two ideologies uh, because we're not going to make it if we can't create that connection, I believe, right? If we can't really become resilient together. Yeah, I have to laugh sometimes when I hear people talk about like this, like we're going to go back or I want to go back to like hunter-gatherer society because it's predicated on like, well, A, most people are hunting with like industrial-made equipment, right? Like not many people are out there like making their own bows and like... You know, and and you can, and I know there are people that do, but like it's, you're talking about trying to recreate thousands of generations of knowledge of the species, of migratory patterns, and that somehow like all the things standing today won't be there anymore, right? Like that the cities are just going to disappear and turn into forests or whatever. Like it's, it's wildly unrealistic. And I think... That doesn't mean things won't change significantly go into the future. I mean, historically speaking, we've always, I think, because of how short our life is, been had a really hard time with them imagining that the world was much different. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, in our lifetime, we will see things change that compared to pre- the last couple of generations will seem, like, wild and, like, unbelievable. But even within that framework, I don't think a future in which we're wild foraging all of our calories or horticulturally growing all of our calories is really viable. But what I, what I think is that is our job, our generation's job to start thinking about what does it mean to start putting the pieces in place for future systems where our food is grown more locally. And I also think when we start talking about food growing more locally and like incorporating like ecological need into what we envision as a healthy ecosystem that produces food, it's both more radical and much less radical than I think people think. So I think it's more radical in the sense that we have to have a much better ecological knowledge, like publicly, all of us. And we all will have a little bit more skin in the game in terms of like, 
local forest management, burns, things like that, allowing people access if you live in the suburbs to, you know, working in the woods around your house or hunting or, you know, wrangling deer so that you can, you know, corral them someplace. But I think fundamentally, you know, you could be talking about how do we press hickory nuts for oil and then using that the hickory byproduct, the patty, to feed to livestock instead of corn. And we end up, as as the consumer, our plate doesn't look significantly different. Or instead of cattle, you know, a deer or, you know, whatever it is, we are very ingenious as humans. And we've created this incredible economic system. And I say that very cautiously in the sense that, like, if you just think about what we've created on a global scale in terms of being able to create efficiencies and you know those those efficiencies are predicated on cheap fuel but still even despite that what we've been able to do with technology why would we ever want to give that up and why wouldn't we try to incorporate it in a way and think about like an ethical way to do that that isn't destroying the landscape mm. we can you know you think about a cell phone like there's no reason we can't build a cell phone that lasts for 40 years right there's there's no reason like we have the technology we have the skills we have the materials we just have to probably make them a little bit bulkier so that they have you know better connections serviceable parts uh replaceable batteries you know all these very basic things and suddenly a thing that we have to replace every year or two lasts for 40 years you're not having that waste cycle going out the door so this idea that we're going to just abandon all that seems silly but also like that the market is going to solve this problem i think is also equally silly because if it was we wouldn't be we would have solved it 50 years ago when it was a very easy thing to do and everyone told jim jimmy carter to you know go kick rocks and we brought reagan in that was a very different vision of what the future would look like and the market did not solve that problem so i i don't think we're going to see that problem get solved by the markets but what i do think we are starting to see a really exciting growth uh, in economics is around this idea of like cooperatives where i think people are really eager to when you've got nothing left to lose because businesses don't pay people enough to live going into business yourself with a bunch of friends under a cooperative and trying to find alternative ways to do things where you're not held captive by capital, especially in a, an age, which I think is in some ways like a golden age in terms of like 3d printing and all these easily accessible, you know, resources to do things cheaply mm. that we can show an alternative, because if you don't show an alternative, why is anyone going to abandon the thing that they're like, well, it's not perfect, but it does work. If you don't have an alternative, there's no reason for people to have faith in something else. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's why it's been creating divide, right? Because it looks very different today of what this possibility of transformation is. And I think many people are you know, if you live in a city and you just go to the supermarket for your food and you can just turn up the AC or the heat when it gets too cold or too warm, your inclination or your desire to change, right? Or to address maybe where the problems are, I think are lessen, are not as strong as someone that lives on the land and say, well, the bees are not returning this year or I had to tap my trees two months earlier and that's creating a whole other set of problems. So we have, you know, the hunter-gatherers kind of crowd, I would say. Uh, I guess the agroecologists and people that are looking more at science and, okay, what is a future system possible? 
And then we have, I wanted to address or bring into the discussion because very often when we talk about collapse to people and when I share about what I do and what I think we could do, very often people think, oh, you're a prepper, right? So I'm this guy that is building a bunker under my house, which I don't, by the way, I don't have, <laughs> I don't have a bunker, <laughs> right? But it's like this idea that is, you know, prepping, I feel is very capitalistic, right? It's coming, I'm going to hoard as many resources in my bunker, that idea of prepping, this is different yeah. ideas, right? And in case something come up, right? I, I survive a little bit longer. And we hear about those billionaires now that are building those massive bunkers uh, in different places in the world. What do you think of that? And I also think, you know, obviously it's completely unrealistic because we never separated from the system around us, right? Yeah. So we, we, we can't survive alone anyway, even with a very nice million dollar bunker. Yeah. I mean, it speaks to the fact that like, I think subconsciously our species is becoming very aware like collectively that things are not going well and they're getting worse the fact that the rich are doing it i think is a little bit more concerning because like they also can pull in the greatest scientists in the world and say hey come tell us how screwed are we and make that decision for themselves in terms of like what prepping is like you're right there's this very individualistic component of it However, I don't think it necessarily has to be that way. Um, when we talk about this idea of being prepared, we think about preparation as like this very materialistic idea of being prepared, right? That you have two weeks worth of beans and, you know, 20 pounds of rice and, you know, one and gallon of paper, water. Please, yeah, <laughs> and, and toilet paper and water and you know, all these different things being, you know, knowing what to do or having the resources to survive it. But for me, preparing and when I talk about like prepping, I mean, like, what are we doing to create a sustainable system if oil wasn't available anymore? Like what happens? What does sustainability, what does our community look like? What does my neighborhood look like? And that means getting to know your neighbors, getting to just get some experience trying different things that you might have to do if you run out of toilet paper, like how could you make shift a bidet, you know, or whatever, you know what I mean? Like those very little fundamental things that may not be like sexy on like some TV show, but like are very functional to like what our everyday life looks like. And those are really important skills that I think, you know, I'll, I'll tell a little funny story. A friend of mine has a, a daughter who's 16. She just went to go get her license and they wouldn't let her use the backup camera. And she was all upset. How am I supposed to back up without a backup camera? And like, I can see her grinning because of the fact that like when we got our licenses, they, they didn't even exist. And not to like sound like a boomer, but like it speaks to like a skill set that we can, like you said, these skills that can be lost so quickly because we're not applying them. We're not learning them. We have this very narrow window. If, if something was passed down for a thousand generations, but you don't pass it down, there's no like some of it somehow slips through, like it's gone. And that is really important when we start thinking about preparing and what are the skills that we have lost? What are the skills we can save today? And that's, I think, where a lot of the my interests have been in particular is like, what are the things that are still out there and we haven't completely lost? They might be on the edge, but we haven't lost them yet. And what can we do to try to document some of that, try to bring it back to life, give it meaning. And um, that gets really messy because especially when you start talking about like traditional land stewardship, because of the fact of colonialism and this idea of like a white guy coming to learn how to do something that the Wampanoag were doing here 600 years ago 
And even if you mean well, it can get really messy and ugly very quickly. Mm. When we talk about prepping, we, it means everything because it means preparing for a future that fundamentally in some way doesn't look like today. And we don't know what that is because we're human. And how could we? Yeah. And I feel, you know, I think it's really interesting the discussion about skills because we're not, we're trying to recover skills from the past potentially and knowledge that have been lost in transit, but we also need to create new type of skills, right? New type of relating because we don't, might not want to go back as it was in the past. It's not going to ever look like that anyway. So there's kind of a fine point about what do we need to keep, right? What do, what needs to survive? What do we need to retrieve? And also as a collective are going to come together to foster more creativity, because I feel that's what's really missing sometime in the conversation is that we need to come with very innovative ideas. We need to come with out of the box ID and very often in those spaces that are about creating those new spaces, there's not always a lot of diversity. There's not always, you know, I'm not talking just in terms of colors and bodies, but or race, but even politically, right? It's very narrow ways, right? It's always like that. And so in terms of solution, and I want to kind of go on to that, how do you think that we can really start implementing this space where, you know, your knowledge and the and the knowledge of other people and how do you do that personally right where you integrate maybe i don't know elders or you integrate people that are very different than you politically or you know in other ways to kind of challenge your ideas and come up maybe with a solution that is more inclusive and because of that more resilient probably That is the million dollar question, right? I think everyone on the left and the right that's paid a little bit of attention to like the ecology and the political climate is aware, like we're we're clearly going down a one-way road and we're all on the same page about that. And within our own groups, we think we're right and that we have the right perspective on things and that we're not bad people. But both sides think the other side wants them dead, basically. So how do you bridge that? And I I think the way to bridge that is to, and this this is for both sides, is to have some humility. I I think humility, slowness, um, and meeting people with genuine care and compassion and concern and empathy is the only way we're ever going to have an honest conversation across the political spectrum. And... I think historically, and I think this also exists still on the right very much so, places like the church have been a space where people are forced to be with one another, right? Where you have to go and literally sit next to somebody and, you know, I I haven't been to church in like 20 years, but they do the whole, like, they go, you know, go around and say, like, please, a peace to you or please peace to be with you know whatever it is Uh, but they're like quite literally forced to talk to one another and there's a whole cultural piece of it that is that is focused on like what are you doing for your community your church community and the outside community and obviously those spaces are often much more right-wing than other spaces and having this very connected community has allowed the right to be very organized in a lot of ways it's part of why it's 2023 and i think a lot of 
opinions on the right are not popular, but they still have been able to kind of dictate policy, you know, whether it's, you know, abortion rights or, you know, any of these other things that are very right wing. I think a lot of people don't really agree with that. And the polls seem to show that, but it doesn't seem to matter because they're very organized. The left doesn't have that. uh, We don't have like that kind of common space, but I think nature can be that. And what I mean is I think, you know, when we're talking about this idea of like the forests are abandoned, like we have abandoned our ecosystem in a quite literal term, like we've fenced it off and abandoned it and forcing people to to come to terms with what it means to restore that landscape is, you know, if, if you've done any forest work, like on a small scale, like trying to clear an understory brush or thinning trees, like if you're talking about a couple hundred acres, that is for a hundred people a year of constant work. Uh, like I, I don't think people truly understand the scope and scale of work that needs to be done. And that, you know, a hundred acre, you know, conservation land is small. <laughs> so like it, when you start like really looking at the scale of what needs to be done, every single person needs to be in the landscape and managing it now, you know, five days a week for decades before the forest has any semblance to, you know, grow into the healthy thing we all want it to be. And I think that space is where we need, we can come together apolitically and start to like recognize that we're people once again. And I, I know that sounds a little like facetious to be like, we need to remember that we're all people, but like, I think, I think the internet and COVID has kind of done that to us where we, we Mm -hmm. forget that we're, we're all people and we all love our families and we all, care about a healthy world for the next generation to grow up in. And we want everyone to have an opportunity to live like a meaningful life. And like, if you polled people, I think 98% of people would agree with all of that. So -hmm. if we all want the same thing, barring like literal fascists, then like, why are we fighting each other? Even if we don't have the same vision, we can still support each other. And if someone's fails, like, we move on, but we need to have that connection. We have to understand each other as humans again. Yeah. I mean, nature has shown us the way, right? It only does it all together or it just doesn't work. There, there's yeah. no, no really outside the system out there. <laughs> yeah, it's the ultimate metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to finish in the last part here for our discussion to talk a little bit about the work you do. And because okay. I think it's very beautiful. We, we You kind of mentioned it a little bit about the seed bank and all that, but can you tell us a little bit more about what you do and maybe, you know, how that can inspire or what people can do? You know, I see many people can feel very overwhelmed, you know, don't know where to start. Uh, not everybody wants to become a hunter gatherer again or a prepper, right? <laughs> yeah. So what are the things that you do and that you are really excited about? And I'm guessing there's a lot of things you are testing too, right? You trials <laughs> and errors and say, well, this didn't work and I want to do that. And yeah. maybe that will inspire people to you know, try something. Yeah. By uh, so the seed, the native seed project is something we're doing. That's really exciting. Basically what we did is we crowdsourced with a bunch of people that listened to the show to uh, harvest a bunch of early succession, slightly aggressive in some cases, slightly focused on like, it's a nice mix of aggressive native species and really pretty flowers. And basically what you do is you go to our website, poorproles.com. You can go click on the native seed sign-up sheet. And in April, we're going to start sending out basically free packets of native seeds. The idea is that that packet of native seeds will cover a small space. So just like you're saying, it's really intimidating. A lot of people would say, yeah, I would love to have a, a native prairie instead of grass. 
But like, I don't know anything about ecology. It sounds really expensive. Yada, yada, yada. I get it. I, I am in the same boat in a lot of ways. But the idea of the seed packet is, you know, if you live in a city and you walk down the street and there's this abandoned alley that's overgrown with weeds, you can take this seed packet and toss it in there and just have this little niche space that is for the local ecology. If you walk to the bus and there's a guardrail with some overgrown weeds, you can clear out those weeds and this is your little spot. And it's, you know, it could be a three by three space. It could be a four by four space. It's something that you can manage very low effort. And then you can see native plants and see the diversity of pollinators that'll come to this one little spot. You've created this little, this little safe zone for native plants that have been otherwise largely pushed off the landscape. That's what a lot of people need is they need that first step and it doesn't have to be super complicated. Mm -hmm. So that is the idea behind the native seed project. We're trying to scale it out in a couple of different directions to start addressing some of the needs for the old growth forest ecosystem. What are some of the trees missing from the landscapes that have historically been here? The hickories, the oaks, in your case, if there's not a lot left, what are the ones that are missing? How can we think about climate adaptation and what species need the most help to get to the places where they'll be the healthiest in North America? That's going to be a longer project that we're working on. But I, you know, I think the idea is how do we try to get people the most amount of resources to create the most amount of native diversity for the cheapest cost possible. And to start showing what that future looks like of what does it look like to create old growth forests and how does that show how the landscape can be differently managed. So that is kind of the direction we've been going in is how do we support native systems and start thinking about where our food comes from within those systems and how can we actually see the health differences between these forests that we're living around and what we envision for a future. And part of that is through research, because we can start to look at documentation that exists about the past. And again, to your point that the past is not going to look like the future. What are some of the things we should be thinking about that we can kind of bring all these different worlds together, bring everyone to the table and have an honest conversation where we're all humble enough to listen to one another, not have all the answers? Because I know I don't have the answers. I'm trying to figure it out, but I don't have the answers. You don't have the answers. None of us do. And we have to be okay with saying that. Yeah, one of my teachers saying, you know, you need to realize that if you don't really know and also allow the grieving. They say that the grieving process at some point, we need to allow ourselves to, you know, maybe feel the overwhelming forces and what it means, right? Yeah. Actually to be able to step into clear action, right? So it's not just rage and anger and fighting. Yeah, we feel are. that grieving. I mean, personally, I want, I like to talk a little bit more on the spiritual sure. side and what, what's your connection to that? And maybe, you know, something that's there for you. Yeah, I grieve, you know, I, my parents are immigrants and my grandparents were farmers in across mostly Italy, but across like the Mediterranean. And it's one of those things that I think about what they were doing and their history with the landscape and how they were pushed off the landscape, basically. And what is my place in trying to reclaim some of their traditional practices here? And what is my place here trying to respect the landscape in a way that is respectful to the people who have lived here without, you know, commodifying or, you know, objectifying or, uh, you know, fetishizing the, the way people had lived in the past here. You know, I, I've spoken to folks in the Wampanoag tribe about 
what I'm doing and some of the work they're doing. It's, it's very interesting to see, I guess the way things you might read on the internet or the way you read these dialogues on the internet is much different than when you have them in person. And I think that can get lost because there's a lot of very loud voices on the internet. But I think a lot of people understand, I think anyone that's paid attention to the ecosystems around us can't be heartbroken by the way things are today, whether or not this is your ancestral homeland. It's hard not to look around and realize how quickly things have decayed. And, Mm. you know, whether or not I personally am responsible, the economic conditions which allow me to live a good life are responsible. And it doesn't mean that I have to be, to have been the one that did it, nor does it, mean that like i'm a bad person for existing under capitalism either or that like you know because i have a white collar job that somehow i individually am perpetuating the system it's messy and it's complicated and it's sad and without coming to the table with some humility about that and just being honest about that I, i don't see how we ever move forward like regardless of talks about land back or any of these other things if we if we can't scale it down to the human level then it doesn't matter thank you for that i'm feeling all of it what you just share andy yeah it's messy it's complex it's sad it's exciting right and we don't have the solutions yeah. and we maybe have bigger questions or different questions right to to bring to the table i guess at the end of the day right? Looking in the places maybe we're not looking at as a collective too much yet together. With all the work that we do with the podcast, you know, we try to highlight all these different things. And one of the things I want to make clear is that like the, the things we know today are not always going to be truths. And like, so everything that you learn should be taken with a grain of salt. Like all the things that we're trying to relearn about the past and trying to find more ethical ways to do things, we will find out some of them turned out to be much worse or that we were doing them completely wrong or that we totally screwed up and we won't find out for 50 years. Like that will happen. That doesn't mean the people that do it are bad people. And we have to have some trust in one another Mm. to, um, recognize that we all want, like I said before, that we all want the same things mostly, and that we all are kind of on the same page of that we want a better future. And we might have different visions of what that might be, but that we're, we're not bad people because th- that future looks different to each of us. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for, for this time together. Thank you for, for sharing all your wisdom. Uh, thank you to everyone that was listening today. And please, yeah, if you get uh, excited or something open up while you were listening for that, please check Andy's podcast, The Poor Paul's Almanac, and we'll have the link under our videos and audios. Check his work, send him support because I think it's beautiful work. And if you got triggered, if you disagreed, if something get really annoyed for you, please also email, message, contact us. We are here to open the conversations and like Andy said, right, we don't have all the answers and uh, we value the different point of views here as long as we can sit calmly around the table and share with curiosity with each other. So so thank you for opening that curiosity, Andy, and thank you for, for being here with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast. We deeply value your support. Please consider sharing this podcast with others and joining our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the sanctuary and why. 
Once again, it is patreon.com slash the sanctuary and why. At the sanctuary, we believe that spirituality is a personal journey that takes many forms, and we honor and respect all paths to awakening and the rise of consciousness. Our mission is to provide a platform for open and honest conversations about spirituality and to inspire and empower our listeners to live their most authentic lives in good relation to each other's, the living, and invisible worlds. I look forward to connecting with you again here or at our events, retreats, and online gatherings. You can find all our offerings at thesanctuaryheal.com. Once again, it is thesanctuaryheal.com.